Our next presenter is sitting up here in his beautiful coat of many colors. <laughs> uh, Donald Rothberg has been practicing uh, the Dharma since 1976, your liberation year. Hmm. And uh, he's really been very uh, active and a pioneer in bringing the Dharma into the world of activism, peace work. He was instrumental in... Uh, keeping the Buddhist Peace Fellowship going and teaching classes and in, in communication skills and peace talk and all that good stuff. A lot of good stuff. Yeah, a lot of good stuff. And, and he's the author of The Engaged Spiritual Life, a Buddhist approach to transforming ourselves and the world. So, Donald, welcome. Thank you very much. And... Also, um, I have gone through a very rigorous training at the uh, Clown School of San Francisco. <laughs> it's very, very important. And I also want to express my uh, sadness that my uh, collaborator, and we had been planning for some time, Conda Mason, is not here um, this afternoon. Had a lot of uh, difficult personal things come up and um, it didn't work for her to be here today. I'm going to try to bring in some of her perspectives. She is a teacher at the East Bay Meditation Center, very involved with uh, permaculture. She's been developing uh, Hub Oakland and especially interested in uh, issues of climate justice, of really addressing questions of how climate impacts the most vulnerable and the most marginalized. And so I'm going to bring some of those in. I hope we all can bring those perspectives in. I um, wanted to begin with a short uh, meditation. And I want to uh, do this by saying some lines, which uh, I find very beautiful and inspiring. And in fact, when I, uh, a lot of times when I practice, I say these lines, uh, 20, 30, 40, 50 times a day to myself to invoke really a quality of uh, awareness and a quality of mind. And you can do this with your eyes uh, open. And I was uh, reflecting on this. It really, this, this really is a kind of invocation that um, has us see our minds as of the earth. This is from the uh, 16th century uh, Tibetan tradition, uh, Dagpo uh, Tashi Namgyal. And it goes like this. Just let this influence your awareness. Open like the sky. Pervasive like the earth. Unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal.
And feel free to take that home and repeat it 20 or 30 or 40 times a day. Say it one more time. Okay. Maybe 20 more times? Okay. <laughs> okay. Open like the sky. Pervasive like the earth. Unshakable like a mountain. Shining like a flame. Lucid like a crystal. Um, most, most days I, um, call my mom up who's in her eighties and I, um, she likes me to say those words and we just do it on the telephone every day. So. And I especially like it because it actually, um, cuts through in a way the distinction between awareness and the earth, between inner and outer and lets us really um, experience those qualities. And I think that's really the essence of what I want to uh, bring up today, which is really about the need for um, a deeper relationship, maybe even a marriage of our inner practices and our outer response. You know, this afternoon we've really been invited to the presenters to move more into the uh, area of how do we respond. And what I want to explore particularly uh, in this uh, short period here is the crucial way that we need to connect our inner practices with our outer responses. I think this was very much implied by what uh, James and Bob uh, in particular were saying, I think that connection of our inner practices and our outer responses um, is vital. And I think we actually need nothing less, that the resources of our um, spiritual practices, our spiritual principles, are needed for what needs to happen. So I want to explore that in a few different ways. First, talking more about that vision, and then secondly, talking a little bit more about the inner responses, and then last, talking some about the outer responses. And I wanted to uh, bring up some, in particular, uh, Spirit Rock as a community, because I think it's very helpful in terms of outer response to think of uh, personal response, the, the response of one's community or organization or, or um, family. Um, and then thirdly, the, the larger collective response and to see how we respond in all of those ways. So first on that, on that vision, uh, it's very possible without that marriage, as it were, of inner practices and action. And if we stay with our inner practices being primarily private, and our outer action following uh, models of activism, 
that have been prevalent in the past, I don't think that works. And I think we tend to have um, certain distortions come in to our practice. Uh, that is, we tend for our meditation practices, I think without, in our own ways, responding to the needs of the world. And that can happen in all sorts of ways. Uh, but without that practice connecting with that, we run the risk of our uh, practice, beautiful practices that we do, being um, in a way um, a wonderful, privileged peace while the world burns, you know. And there's, um, I wanted to read something. Some of you know this uh, text from a few years ago by Bhikkhu Bodhi, where he said, it seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or with a bow to Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often we do not focus on the suffering of the world. And there's, there's a danger in, you know, in being in Asia. Many of the teachers that I worked with, people like uh, Sulak Sivarakshan, and I, th I also encountered this talking with uh, liberation theologians from uh, Latin America, that there was a real, they were concerned about the future of Buddhism, that it might be something that would uh, be, in their words, a kind of escapism, you know? And so it's, it's, a, it's a danger. And yet we, we also know that traditional, if we can call it that, but prevalent modes of action and activism also are very subject to distortions, you know? And um, we know if I can run down a concise list of those distortions or the, the problems, we could say that there's a danger, let's say, occupational hazard of people who want to do good to um, be self-righteous, to be attached to their views, to be unskillful with challenging emotions, particularly anger, and often be fueled uh, exclusively by anger, to demonize the enemy, to find themselves for these and other reasons uh, actually burning out and not really able to sustain for the long haul, to not have that, those qualities of equanimity uh, that we were that we were mentioning before, and to not be able to be skillful with the immensity of difficulty or sometimes suffering. So guess where activists learn how to um, correct those possible distortions, learn about attachment to views, working with difficult emotions, etc. Guess where they learn that? Anyone? Yeah, in the Dharma, right here, right. And so you see that there's such a, a, a joining that's really called for. That's, that this is really a, um, a connection that really, I think, points to something new. It points to a new, and this is really, I think, what Paul was talking about. It's kind of like a, um, the imagination of the earth is coming up with a new kind of being. It's really the bodhisattva of our times. 
that would be able to respond deeply, but have the inner skills to do so for the long haul, to be able to be with difficulties, to be able to keep that sense of um, um, freedom of the mind, even with very challenging situations. And I think, you know, my own sense is that this is actually, uh, again, in the spirit of what Paul was saying, um, an evolutionary development. It's really something that's being called forth because without those being connected, I don't think we have the resources to really pull off what needs to be done. And again, it's very much the, the spirit, I think, of the Buddhist uh, bodhisattva. I think the bodhisattva is um, being reborn. It's being reborn in our times. Remember who the bodhisattva is? It's the being that is dedicated both to awakening and to helping others to, to be very succinct about it. And that makes a commitment to, uh, no matter what happens, I will be there for other beings, right? And that I will, I will be there and makes a, makes a vow, makes a very deep vow that there is, let me see. From the Theravada Bodhisattva tradition, crossed, I would cross others, freed, I would free others, tamed, I would tame others, calmed, I would calm others, comforted, I would comfort others, purified, I would purify others, awakened, I would awaken others. Oh, may I awaken to supreme, perfect enlightenment and bring well-being and happiness to all beings. <laughs> and then some of you know this from the uh, Zen tradition, the Bodhisattva vow, living beings are infinite, I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to cut through them. Dharma gates are boundless, I vow to enter them. The Buddha way is unsurpassable, I vow to realize it. So what I find is really being invited, is our own way of doing that. And I, I want to uh, say very directly that for me, this means really finding our own place to uh, be active. It doesn't mean everyone becomes an activist. You know, I remember that beautiful uh, response from the African-American theologian Howard Thurman, asked by a young man, what should I do? And Howard Thurman had created the first interracial church in the Bay Area uh, in the 1940s. and was very active, and this was near the end of his life, and you might have thought he would have said, okay, we have, this project needs people. Why don't you do this? Why don't you do this? And instead he said, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. It's another way of saying what Paul was saying in terms of being in love with life, right? Ask what makes you come alive. And I, I think very much of uh, Joanna Macy, my dear sister's um, teaching, which has stayed with me for a very long time. She says that the great turning, which is what we're in the midst of, has these three uh, elements. And some of us are drawn to one, some to another, and some to another. And we all find our place where our gifts are. Very important point, because this is not about everyone having to be on the front lines, but it's really finding where we are, where our gifts call us in the turning. And she said that there are three kinds of 
three aspects of the turning. First is what she calls holding actions to prevent further damage. And there's a lot of that needed, right? Tremendous amount of that needed. And parenthetically, uh, public comment on the tar sands pipeline can be made for the next two days. Okay, wanted to bring that in. Um, uh, public comment is closed. Yeah. And the second is really seeing how our institutions work and developing alternative institutions. So this would be developing environmental education in the schools. This would be developing different kinds of medical approaches. This would be uh, developing new approaches to parenting or community and really doing things in a way that is sustainable in whatever field we feel drawn to. Very, very crucial. And the third is a shift in consciousness and really having one's uh, action be part of this shift towards that sense of interdependence, towards that um, way of being that will, um, that, that, that is sustainable. Whatever that is, whether it's teaching yoga or teaching meditation. And what I find crucial is that it's very helpful for all three of those to know that the others exist and to be connected, right? Some people will be activists, but it's really good to know that part of that turning is a shift in consciousness, right? So I just wanna name that because this isn't about telling everyone you should do this, you should do that. It's really what's being called for is, in, is to feel that inner calling and know what that inner calling is. So inner responses, what are, what are part of the, what, are, what kind of inner responses are we talking about to, to this? Um, I think a lot of it is very connected with what uh, Bob was saying in terms of those principles. I think a lot of it is to really make those connections between inner and outer. Um, very much like some of you know uh, Thich Nhat Hanh in the 1950s and 60s coming out of a traditional monastic life in the presence of crisis. And this is what he said, when I was in Vietnam, so many of our villages were being bombed. Along with my monastic brothers and sisters, I had to decide what to do. Should we continue to practice in our monasteries or should we leave the meditation halls in order to help the people who were suffering? After careful reflection, we decided to do both. both. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> That's what this is about. This is about both, both and, right? Uh, to go out and help people and to do so in mindfulness. We called it engaged Buddhism. Mindfulness must be engaged. Once there is seeing, there must be acting. We must be aware of the real problems of the world. Then with mindfulness, we will know what to do and what not to do to be of help. Very, very crucial. And so we can really look at those uh, core principles of our practice and what I, again, what I find in particularly working over the years with uh, training programs to connect inner work and outer response is that often our core understandings of the Dharma are given only an, uh, an individual interpretation. And so our practice is beautifully developed in an inner way, but the challenges are how do we bring our practice out into the relational realm and into the collective realm? I think another issue of our practice, if I can say this, and I'm, of course this is a totally loving critique of 
beautiful practices, and it's a, it's a self-challenging self, uh, as well, is I think that when we think of the traditional three trainings in the Dharma, which are uh, essentially ethics, meditation, and wisdom, we've tended to really emphasize meditation the most. And we don't always emphasize the ethics and the wisdom part. You know? Part of that's because we primarily teach meditation. We bring the others in, but not always with as much as depth. So when we look to ethics, for example, and uh, very much like Bob was saying, and we, in our ethics, we're committed to non-harming, but how do we extend that to all the parts of our lives? How do we uh, really look at our ethical commitment in terms of future generations? You know, is, are my present actions harming or tending to harm future generations? Are they harming people in other, in other lands? We know that the impact of climate change is especially on those who, didn't, who are not causing the problems, right? Right? We know that. And so this is a challenge, right? How do we do this? How do we, how do we look more deeply? Or how do, we, how do we look in our wisdom and really see the causes and conditions? I think it's very much uh, looking into the, these core teachings of what are the roots of suffering? How do I understand the structure of self? What kind of self am I? You know, and we know that we've, we are very conditioned in this culture, by and large, I guess not uniform, but we tend to have a, this very self-centered self, even as, even as we're meditating. Can be a very deeply self-centered meditator trying to deconstruct the self. Okay, there is tension there, do you get that? Right? And, and how, do we, how do we look at that? How do we understand I think that our times are calling for this self-centered, what we might call hyper-individualized self to become an interdependent self. And this is challenging. It's very, it's very hard to know sometimes what to do. Now, I was thinking of that in terms of the outer response. Um, some things we can really be very clear about how we're going to respond. So, for example, looking at Spirit Rock. Um, and I, I've been taking the last week and looking over all the documents and their beautiful ways that Spirit Rock and its capital campaign is totally dedicated to green buildings, you know, and greening of everything on the land and very amazing, you know. And I was, I was inspired also by attending for uh, the last period of time the meetings of the Berkeley Climate Action Coalition. They have a beautiful, precise analysis of the carbon footprint of the city of Berkeley. You know, and some, I think someone at the UN said it was actually a model for all cities. And it was very precise in terms of, here's the footprint from transportation, people coming and going into Berkeley, here's the footprint for housing, all the different needs of housing, here's the footprint from waste. And actually transportation was 46% of the footprint. And Berkeley voters uh, committed the city to reduce the carbon footprint by 33% by 2020 and 80% by 2050, which may not be quite enough, but it was, it's, it's big. And I was reflecting that our challenge 
We can do wonderful things where we, where we have control, for example, at Spirit Rock with the housing, with the use, all sorts of things ranging from how we use paper and so forth. You know what's really challenging? Transportation. And this is where we get into how do we come up against our own acting out of habit, convenience, maybe privilege, and so forth. How many of you, I'm, oh, okay. today, <laughs> Maybe, I mean, maybe just to see it graphically. How many of us today came in a car with one or two people? How many of you came in, how many of us came in a car with one person? Yeah. And what would it take? How many came on a bike? <laughs> how many walked? <laughs> and so... What I feel is really what every community, I think, needs to do is to really assess the carbon footprint. And something like transportation is a lot harder because it's really about the lack of public transportation nearby. And, and you know, part of it would mean really encouraging carpooling, but that's hard, isn't it? You know, do you feel yourself getting up against our habits? What would it take? Some people say that in the long run, it takes, uh, it takes a mobilization that's akin to the mobilization after Pearl Harbor for us to do this, for us to pull this off, right? What would it mean if we really thought this was of concern, how would we act? How would we act? And what, what, uh, what would we look at in terms of our own behavior? This, for me, is very challenging, you know, and I can feel a little uncomfortable which I think is, is, is healthy. And so in terms of responses, outer responses, just to name them, I think we all know there are all sorts of responses that we can do in terms of our household that can be quite beautiful, and we can reduce that carbon footprint. Um, I've been reading a book called The Low Carbon Diet, which says it promises to help us reduce, uh, to lose 5,000 pounds a year. <laughs> Because the average American consumes 55,000 pounds of carbon a year. And we can very easily cut that. Actually, Sweden, which I think has a higher standard of living than us, they consume 15,000 pounds per person. We consume 55,000. Right? Yeah. And so there's a lot we can do on a household level. And I think this is within our control. This is accessible. We can do things in our communities. Like I mentioned, already a huge amount is being done. I think everything that's easily within the control of Spirit Rock is being acted on. The harder things like transportation will take a little more work and some action, I think, necessary. And I think it's also encouraging to know, this is, this is what I believe, is that actually the large-scale collective solutions actually are uh, pretty clear what to do and how to do them. Some of you who've read Lester Brown, you know, um, they're pretty, you know, there's an outline of what needs to be done to reduce by 80% by 2020. And it's not so hard to imagine, you know, increase energy efficiency, shift from fossil fused fuel, fuels to renewable energy, stabilize the population and eradicate poverty, um, restore the earth, feed people. You know, he has, under each of these, he has 15 actions. You know, and so it's quite clear, of course, what's challenging is that um, our leaders are not doing this at all, or very little, you know. And so, 
So somehow, how do we find ways to respond at all of those levels, in our own ways, personal, community, and that larger level? Uh, Bill McKibben said something in an article a week or two ago. He said something very interesting. He said that if 10 or 15% of the population develop impeccable, sustainable ways of being in their own personal lives, it'll be nice, but not much will change. If those 10 or 15% of the people choose to be very active with the horizon of helping to shift the larger systems, everything will change. You know, and that really, um, that really calls forth, I think, the, the bodhisattva. And I wanna, I wanna finish with this and maybe I think, uh, and also do a little bit of an exercise. Um, Um, you know, as we connect this, uh, the inner work and deepen it and more and more see in all the parts of our lives how to have that go out into the different parts of daily life and go out into our action, what, do we, what can inspire us? And I was thinking of the Bodhisattva figure. I, was, I would say that the Bodhisattva figure knows several things. And this, these are really our training areas. The bodhisattva, first of all, knows freedom. Knows the freedom of awareness from having practiced and knows how mind states are temporary and can be worked with. And knows where he or she gets stuck. And knows how to work with that. And can increasingly touch freedom even in the most challenging situations. The bodhisattva has that training. The bodhisattva also has the training of knowing how to be with suffering, of knowing how to be with difficulties. This is our training. We have to train in this, right? We have to keep on training. We have, the bodhisattva knows how to be with suffering and can be skillful with one's own suffering, with other people's suffering, and is ultimately not scared of suffering, is not scared of pain. And that's a training. We have to ha have that deeply in these times. The bodhisattva has skillful means. The bodhisattva has all sorts of tricks, <laughs> all sorts of ways of working with uh, challenging situations. And I think ultimately we, I think in our own being and then in among the people we know, we have to really encourage this combination of the inner work and the outer response, that we have to see where am I called to respond in, in, in this uh, area of climate change? And then may, uh, may people who are active gain the gift of Dharma practice. And may that be, give them tools that let them act and let them avoid those kind of distortions and those problems which uh, are so pervasive, very, 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 very crucial. So I want to uh, invite you, we have just a few minutes left, I want to invite you just to reflect for a moment. If you think of that Howard Thurman quote, and ask what makes me come alive in the context of our, of our day, and where are you called right now in terms of your own response 
could be a personal level, could be in your community, could be helping with the collective issues. What one or two training, further training or actions call you right now? And take a moment now just to find a neighbor. Just take a moment to say what you, what pulls you right now. Where you're, where you are, where you are called particularly in the light of our theme for the day. So just turn to a neighbor and take just a few minutes, two or three minutes to share, each of you share what's there. So I'd like to, I'd love to hear maybe just from a few people. We just have a few minutes left. Maybe if we could use the uh, microphone. Would anyone like to share? Anyone, li anyone like to share what, what's calling you right now? So really called to look at investments and to look at that in terms of what's causing damage and what's beneficial. Right, beautiful. I was just thinking how much easier it was for me to answer the question on a day like today with all these great community organizations <laughs> out here and yeah. thinking about not only doing something but joining a community. Yeah. And so thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. So plugging into existing communities, existing organizations, yeah. Others, please. Take uh, maybe two more. Okay. Well, I think one of the most common organizations people belong to that's par so powerful are churches. And I think churches are right on the tip, I think, of acknowledging this, they need to take that further step. And I think a lot of us can maybe help them along in that way. The concept of God has often been very disembodied, mm -hmm. but uh, uh, there's change, and I don't think that has to be. So I think there mm -hmm. is movement, but we could encourage that. So being more active in one's community, particularly church, yeah, or synagogue, or temple. Um, up front here? Or meditation center. <laughs> Poor Spirit Rock. <laughs> so I work for the Marin County Bicycle Coalition, so we do transportation. Yeah. And um, one of the things I was called to do a few months ago is to um, ride the climate ride, which is a 300-mile bike ride down the California coast from Eureka to San Francisco. And uh, I am not an athlete. <laughs> I'm usually the last person who comes in and groups ride, so I'm not one of those fast, energetic riders. So this is a big challenge for me. Um, but this is to raise awareness on climate change and to promote bicycling for transportation. And I am raising money for this, on, um, which will benefit Marin County Bicycle Coalition. If you'd like to help me out, please find me. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. 
So I want to I want to finish now because we're we're at time. Okay. So. Are we done? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Can leave that there. I just want to end with uh, three very brief uh, passages uh, that, for me, are very much uh, about the um, yeah this marriage of inner and outer, inner response, outer response, and bringing that out into the world. Um, the first is from the Jewish tradition. From the second century, Rabbi Tarfan said, it is not upon you to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. <laughs> it's not upon you to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. And the second is from um, Zen teacher, Odo Sesho Roshi, who was uh, Gary Snyder's Zen teacher in Japan. He said, and listen to this with a big mind. <laughs> okay. In Zen, there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. <laughs> Get it? Okay. <laughs> okay. And thirdly, this is from uh, Dina Metzger, uh, called Song. There are those who are trying to set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is time only to work slowly. There is no time not to love. Thank you.